let us continue now with our reading. We are in the middle of the paragraph number 26, which is talking about the last event in the life of Jesus. Then Jesus told them, it was after he told to Judas, there was a strange scene from the Last Supper, and at the same time Jesus is defining the new covenant, the new sacrament, which has remained until today. Then Jesus, and then it ends by saying that they went to the Mount of Olives, which those of you who know Jerusalem is very close to the old city, just on the nearby place. Then Jesus told them, This is very nice, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. First of all, Jesus predicts some events here. He announces them that afterwards he will be in Galilee. And he defines a principle which has been used by the demonic forces ever since this humanity. He says, because it is written, and this, it is written, it is from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, who says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's not a very flattering view on humanity, because it simply says, human beings without a proper guide, they simply go lost. That means, theoretically, you could say, well, so what if they beat Jesus up and killed him and whatever? Then everybody had an immortal soul, and everybody was a person, and everybody... That's blah, blah, blah. That's modern blah, 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 uh, in which uh, the traditionalists did not believe exactly as the disciples in India, they were aware of the fact that they needed some guidance because else it's so easy to get lost to believe things which are not there to take all kind of dubious paths. In the same way Prophet Zechariah says, and here Jesus sustains it completely, that if you beat the shepherd, the sheep will be lost. Basically the sheep do not have the power to be by themselves. Um, even the apostles, I mean these people are now, some of the people have been with Jesus for three years. They are those which are supposed to continue his mission. They are supposed to have seen miracles. They are supposed to be, why not, grown up spiritually, filled up with a lot of teachings, all those from the Bible, plus a lot of oral teachings which have never made it to the Bible, and so on. And yet, Jesus says, if I'm going to be beaten, the sheep will be scattered, and uh, that's the bottom line. And therefore, uh, that's not very flattering in showing uh, that in spirituality, it is really, really difficult to keep this line. That is why uh, this is a deep issue, you should meditate on it metaphysically, because um, this adventure, the spiritual adventure of the human being, has been compared by great metaphysicians like René Guénon, with like breaking through the ceiling, it's like breaking an opening, to the divine. That means it is considered that uh, the great spiritual paths of this humanity, <coughs> and I'm talking about those great spiritual paths which have been verified and authenticated 
<coughs> by the passing of time, what we called in the other day the bona fide, the bona fide, whatever you pronounce it, types of religions, because I said that not everything which proclaims itself as a form of religion or spirituality is necessarily a bona fide form of religion or spirituality. But of course we have the major ones which have become widely known and uh, verified in time. And even if some of them have become institutionalized, still they are some of the great spiritual parts of mankind which have existed and uh, still exist. <coughs> Therefore, all these parts of spirituality, they come first and foremost from someone who made it. To make a spiritual path, first of all you need a person who did it. That means the mountain guy who climbed the mountain and it, he knows at least one trajectory, one path to get to the top of the mountain. This man is like the pilot of the ship. He knows where to go, where not to go, where the pitfalls are. He perhaps doesn't know all the parts of the mountain, but at least he knows one part of the mountain, and that's much better than nothing. So basically you need, first of all, somebody who has crossed the path. Not everybody who has crossed the path and climbed the mountain and reached the top of the mountain, however, not everybody of those men and women who did that, they chose to have disciples, they chose to become teachers, or if you want more, they chose to create a spiritual path of their own. Actually, very seldom it is happening that people who, were, uh, who reached enlightenment, they chose to create another path of their own, because now they have discovered something. It is a little bit, if you want, like the attempt of a Gurdjieff who plays with things. He doesn't belong neither to this path, nor to this path, nor to this, nor to that. And basically to what does Gurdjieff belong? He is a bit of a maverick who more or less playfully creates a path of his own. That that path is dubious or crazy or that nobody really managed to use it afterwards. That's perhaps like climbing a mountain where you have a crazy mountaineering guide and this guy is giving you a path which is simply impossible and crazy. And it's kind of, many people say, yeah, yeah, right, this path of Gurdjieff works, but it worked only for him because he was the only one crazy enough to climb on such a path. The average person cannot go there, cannot do it so. So what I'm trying to say is that usually the average spiritual practitioner does not try to make a path He's not cutting a new path through the jungle. He is using the old footpaths which are already there, made by others. So he is sometimes integrated in Christianity, sometimes integrated in Buddhism, sometimes integrated in yoga, sometimes integrated in whatever type of path that is. And he is using a beaten path. He is using a model which has been used by the others. Why? Because it is, first of all, it is very difficult to... It is very difficult not, it's very difficult to find the top of the mountain. Uh, and uh, while, of course, on a mountain you say, what do you mean? It's just up there. You just go up and up and up and up and you'll find it. Not so in spirituality, because in spirituality you are searching for something which you don't know. That means this nirvana, this void, this purusha, this absolute, this divine thing, it's something which for the human being is 
unknown, we are searching for a mysterious quantity, we are searching for something which is a mysterious unknown, the great void, the Purusha, the Shiva nature of the universe, or whatever you choose to call it. And therefore, to, to search for it, first of all, uh, to search for it without guidance, it is really, 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 really uh, risky. Some yogis have simply said, the chance of you closing your eyes and meditating 30 years like Ramana Maharishi or 12 years like Buddha or God knows like what, just sitting there and closing your eye and meditating and suddenly hitting jackpot, the chance is the same as like find, finding a needle in a haystack. It's basically almost impossible. That is why in spirituality, nobody who is serious dares to contemplate the possibility that without any help, without any path, without any method, not following the footpaths which have already made by the predecessors, somebody will cut a new path just originally. That's one of the stupid obsessions of modern people, guided by their demonic arrogance and by their ego and lack of surrender and lack of devotion and all the others, that they don't need anybody. And if Buddha apparently did it without a guru, and if Ramana Maharishi apparently did it without a guru, then every Tom, Dick and Harry can do it. That is usually demonstrated not to be exact in practice. And therefore, what we are talking about is that people try to go onto a path. And some rare yogis, some rare spiritual beings in this mankind, they had like a warrant which was a little bit bigger. Not only that they reconfirmed the path and they integrated themselves on a previous path. Like for example, all the Christian saints who keep on reconfirming the same thing. Starting with the apostles, which are the first ones who got enlightened. And then following with great saints, great saints, many, many generations and the fathers of the desert and all the others. Basically, they all cross the same path with, of course, with slight variations. There is nothing which is identical. And basically what I'm trying to say, these people don't try to generate a new path unless you refer to some minor differentiations. These people are basically reconfirming time and again the same fundamental path. But some people in this mankind, they have been given this grace or this task, it's not so much maybe a grace, but a mission, to create new paths, like to build a new path. Like you can see that, uh, let's say, Kashmir Shaivism in the 9th and 10th century is a new path. The fact that the Kargyutpa type of spirituality, the fact that Marpa, Milarepa, and their gurus, of course, starting with Tilopa and Naropa, they build a form of spirituality and they are the first ones who bring it to Tibet, and Tibet begins to work on those thoughts, uh, on, those, on those lines, it's again, it's a new line, basically, Tilopa, Naropa, Tilopa, Tilopa, Naropa, Marpa and Milarepa, they are the creators of a new line, they are the starters of a lineage, perhaps Tilopa, mostly as the first of them, but still, each one of them like brings their own contribution in kind of settling it down, defining it and so on. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that uh, actual spirituality can be built by a person who needs to fulfill two conditions. One, that person needs to have reached the top of the mountain at least once, 
clearly by themselves because else they will not know where to guide the others without this one it's a catastrophe and the second thing is that the person should have a kind of warrant from God because remember not everybody has the mission of everybody who gets enlightened splashing over another spiritual path actually 90% of the people who got enlightened on this planet they more or less followed a traditional path and they simply reinforced that path like Ramakrishna does not create a new path ultimately he just talks about Vedanta he followed the path of Tantra and Vedanta and he mostly preaches Vedanta and all the others who have been there like Yogananda doesn't create a new path he is just reinforcing the path of Kriya Yoga which belongs to his Guru, to the Guru of his Guru and to the Guru of his Guru of his Guru so in this way Usually, because of this lack of ego, it's like I don't need to demonstrate anything to anybody. My personality doesn't manifest just by trying to be idiotically original, because this desire to be original at all costs, sometimes is just a madness. It's just a, it shows a very, very unfulfilled personality. And in this way, most of these people, they did not feel that, they had the, that it was a divine necessity that the angels or God whispered in their ear, start a new path, do something. Sometimes some people did start new paths, but again, they felt the answer to the consecration, to speak in a simplified yogic way. They simply felt that this is what they were born to, and it was necessary, and basically that God wanted them to do this. Therefore, the person who opens a new path, he is like drawing a line. He is basically telling from this place where you are, this is the thread, the red thread, the silver thread if you prefer, which goes, it's like to find God, it's like you are swimming under ice and there is only one opening, there is a hole. And when you are underwater, you will not see where the hole is. And therefore, somebody comes and gives you a line and says, follow this line and you will get to the opening which is kind of crossing into the non-manifestation. So basically, without that, the chance of you finding it, as I say, is kind of nil. It has happened rarely in history, and only to people for whom the will of God required that they should fulfill this, and for people who are prepared, who are predestined for a historical uh, mission in one way or another. And that is why... Here uh, things are very, very clear. I, I wanted to say this because indeed uh, the sheep without the shepherd, they cannot exist. This is the thing. You cannot imagine Christianity without Jesus. Without Jesus there is no Christianity. The whole Christianity stands on this cornerstone which is Jesus. Everything which exists in Christianity, Virgin Mary, Apostles, church and so on is 0.01% compared with the 99.99% which is Jesus himself. Jesus is Christianity. In the same way, Buddha is Buddhism. You cannot imagine Buddhism taking Buddha out because when Buddha did what he did and uh, as they put it in Buddhism, he held his first preach his first sermon and he set into motion the wheel of Dharma as it is called that when Buddha held the first sermon he kind of set into motion the wheel of Dharma basically it's in that moment he manifested the warrant which he had from God that I among so many other enlightened beings I am, a, I am allowed or required any way you want 
to step forward and to create a new line, to create a new modality, to give to this mankind uh, another, to cross, to simply cut another path on the mountain and to show it's possible to climb the mountain also this way. And that is why, remember that this is the most important thing. This is how you define a bona, bona fide religion and this is the problem which many people do not understand. Many people, especially the modern spirit, which is a bit Luciferian, uh, says, oh, the human being is strong and smart, humans can do everything, and so on. That, according to Jesus, is bollocks, because if you beat the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. This is as much as the sheep are. And therefore, yes, you can paradoxically see that even when these events happen to Jesus, suddenly it's like nobody is nothing. Uh, it's kind of even the apostles who are supposed to be smart uh, or to have seen things, they scatter like the birds, like scared like birds, and they suddenly become zero. And it takes a while before they gather the momentum and before they actually start coming to their senses. And Jesus, as you are going to see, claims that that is also a result of his prayer that he asked that it's, it's part of his mission, it's part of his modus operandi, it's part of his action that actually he makes that one of them or two of them should recover and bring the others back to their senses and say, whoa, 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 you know, let's just recollect a little bit here and let's come back to our senses. And that is why this is a very important path, an important issue. Spiritual paths, remember, they are created by somebody who had the authority to create that path. Can somebody who doesn't have the authority, it's a bit tough said, somebody who has a minor authorization because everybody is free in the Spirit of God, can somebody create a path of their own just like this? Yeah, for fun, like Gurdjieff or like Ramana Maharishi, surely you can create a little thing. It's probably never meant to become a world religion or something really, really famous because those are already in the management plan of God concerning this planet. What appears, what develops, what should last and so on. That's not up to the individual to decide. The individual is only a tool in this great game of spirituality on this planet. And that is why the, uh, remember that any path is like somebody has opened a hatch. It's like somebody who was allowed has opened a hatch drew a line or a staircase, and there is a new path. That means any spiritual path starts from Sahasrara and comes down to the humanity. It's not that the human being strives and strives and hits jackpot. If it's exactly as if you would close your eyes, blind for yourself, spin around three times, and then shoot a bullet at random and hope to hit the target. It's kind of, it's completely at random that you close your eyes go in the labyrinth of your mind and hope to find there Atman. You cannot find Atman like this because Atman is a point of zero dimension. To hit it, you have to go directly to it. If you don't go directly to it, just a one degree difference in your trajectory will take you completely somewhere else. You'll miss it by little and you'll go in the out, in the dark. You'll go into the labyrinth. You'll lose yourself into the labyrinth. 
That is why remember that spiritual paths cannot be approximate because there is no room for amateurism or approximation in spirituality. That's why the spiritual paths are drawn very clearly. It is like this and it is like this and it should stay like this in the meaning that you are not supposed to fiddle with some of the fundamental truths more than something because they are more than a certain uh, uh, amount because they are put there for a very clear purpose. These are paths which are drawn and exactly as when you climb a mountain which is dangerous and when you don't, which you don't know you follow religiously the signs painted on the rocks and trees and you always follow the red ribbon or whatever the sign is and you know that as long as you follow that sign it takes you to the top of the mountain, to your destination, home, whatever you call that. Uh, exactly in the same way it is with the different forms of spirituality. And remember that most guides, they use those. That means if you suddenly would, your teacher would have been one of the fathers of the desert, again, he would probably not create a part of his own with small variations which come from personality because people are not photocopied. They have some small variability from their own personality. Still, he would show you a path which was not created by him, but which was created by some who had a license to create that path, and that is a license from the divine consciousness. So in this way, uh, what Jesus is doing is that he's creating a path. That's the easy part. Others did. Like, for example, there is a... I'll give you just an example to show. There is a great Tibetan yogi who apparently had a big contribution, a la Milarepa, to spirituality, and this great yogi who realized that what he was doing, he, uh, he was a, a guy from Dolpo, it's one of those famous biographies in Four Lamas of Dolpo, this guy who is a fully enlightened being and a fully powerful spiritual being and one of the most frightening, toughest type of persons you have ever heard about, he's simply magnificent in terms of tapas, this guy, at some point, he's practicing a lot of... He's just going in three-year retreats and another three-year and another three-year. So he just spends nine years in retreats and stuff like this, doing basically practice day in and day out. And then he does practice like this. He says at some point, I will say it approximately because I don't remember the words, but that's the meaning of it. He actually uses also oblique words because he's quite modest and he doesn't really want to brag or just talk big or anything. At some point he is doing obviously some form of mixture of pranayama, kundalini yoga, which puts him in states of void. So as soon as his kundalini goes up, he reaches some states where he remains. But he wants to do that again and again paradoxically. So he is doing this, he is going in a state of high consciousness in Sahasrara, and then you can say, wow, why doesn't he stay there and enjoy the nirvana? No. He doesn't want to enjoy the nirvana because he's a bodhisattva. He has a lot of people to save. So why should he enjoy nirvana before everybody is there? So immediately he extracts himself out. He comes back to Mulakara and starts all over. And he does like hundreds of kundalini risings like this. Although he could... And uh, he says, I was doing every morning, I don't know, 120 of these and like he would do Mahamudras in yoga or something like this and he says I'm doing 120 of these and then he says sometimes I would stay blocked, I will simply forget myself I will remain fixed in this state of voidness and he said if I would remain fixed 
then when I would recover, I would realize I lost the time and uh, basically I would punish myself for being slow in the practice and uh, I had to do 120, well, I didn't take lunch. I simply don't take lunch before I finish 120. And he kept on and on. It's like he didn't even allow himself to stay too much in Samadhi after each rush of Kundalini because he had to do 120. You can say why? wasn't the purpose to reach Kundalini, to reach Sahasrara, to reach Samadhi. No, not for him. He already had reached it. Now he was doing it for his disciples and for you and for me and for the next generations. He was simply creating a path. He was doing it for others. Simply in the name of others so that it should work for them. And that is why he was just doing thousands and tens of thousands of Kundalini risings like this for consecrating it, offering it to the Buddhas of three times, to those who will become enlightened one day. So in this way, it's like this man was cutting a path. This man was simply creating a path in the mind of this planet because he was doing such a titanic work to create it for others. And that is why, remember that the, here, the idea of Jesus is very profound. When he says, I will strike the shepherds and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, he actually means it. Remember, if you don't come from above, if you don't have Sahasrara and this special license, you cannot do anything. Somebody, even who is 80% of the path, they can still miss Atman if suddenly they are left alone in the middle of the process. That means there is no guarantee. Remember that there exists this vanity, this human arrogance that, oh, I can do it, and if Ramana Maharishi did it, and so on. Experience shows that relying on Ramana Maharishi's model is silly because in practice things are not that simple. So for this reason, here Jesus introduces very clearly how important the shepherd actually is because a lot of things depend on him. Even the apostles who are great people, at least they have witnessed great things and they have been already having a spiritual background, a spiritual experience, and Jesus had pumped in them a lot of spiritual knowledge, and if the shepherd will be beaten, the sheep will be scattered. That is why, also remember that the demonic forces are very aware of this, and while propagandistically they advise every person, no, you are not a sheep, you are a great important person, you can do it, you are smart, be yourself, and that's just to stimulate your ego, uh, on the other hand, they know very well, and every time when it comes to something to demote some form of spirituality, the model is very clear. It is not Peter who got <coughs> crucified. It is not the apostles who got beaten up and scattered. It is Jesus. Everybody who attacked any form of spirituality, they try to attack it to the top, because they realize that if you cut the top, then it's kind of, they will never find the top by themselves. This mysterious hatch which is the crossing point, it is the talent of somebody who brought it. And if the others don't find it, ah, if then he is like Shivananda and he has 30 disciples who reach Samadhi, then you can eliminate Shivananda and there will still be 30 people who know the path. That's okay. But if there is only one, in the moment when that one has gone, the others are completely helpless. That means in a certain way, you can say Ramana Maharishi was enlightened. Right, good for him. But since nobody remained after him who had reached the same state of consciousness, 
then all the ashram of Ramana Maharishi became a memorial. It didn't become a practical place where you can reach Samadhi anymore because it's, it doesn't have the path. Ramana was the path and Ramana passed away without putting the path in anybody else because that was his thing. Krishnamurti might have been enlightened but when he died so did his enlightenment for the others, not for himself, for the others. Osho Rajneesh might have reached some forms of Samadhi and apparently he did but in the moment when he died there remained just a bunch of confused people. Even if somebody was advanced on that path it's not good enough. Advanced is not good enough because what is really difficult is to find the hatch, to find the opening, to find the ultimate hole there to cross into the non-manifestation. And that is how you should meditate and think about how this spiritual paths were created and what is the actual difficulty there. Remember, you are searching for the infinite. It is like in one of your bright thoughts which says searching for something you haven't seen or as a proverb, I forgot the way it says, but basically it says that you are searching for something unknown and you don't even know if it exists or what it is. How are you going to find it then? It's very, very difficult. So in this way, guidance is needed one way or the other. And uh, I will not insist, the idea is pretty clear, but it has some very, very deep tones, undertones in spirituality. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But, people, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. <coughs> people are enthusiastic, but when they get confronted with the real things, then it's more difficult. Then Jesus went with, and also because this, this is the demonic pressure, this was not just an event where two comrades were playing bowling, one of them got arrested by the police, and the other one... Uh, put, uh, whatever, bailed him out of the prison. If it would have been three drunks out of which one broke a window and was taken by the police, you can be sure that the other two would have run to the police and bailed him out or whatever. That works with drunks, but in the case when Jesus was taken there, it was not the same. You can imagine the pressure, the diabolic planes, what kind of pressure exerted to stop this thing which was the ultimate catastrophe for them. It's like basically all the pressure that the demons and the devils could exert was exerted in that moment and exerted on anybody, on the people who were judging Jesus to judge him as sternly as possible and eliminate him, exterminate him, on the people who wanted to defend Jesus to, to run away, to be scared, not to dare to stand up and to say any word. So that is why even when Jesus was to be defended in the Sanhedrin, even the people who knew him, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and others, they didn't find much energy to stand up and knock with their fist in the table and say, fuck you, you are doing something really wrong. You can't do this, I will stand for this man, and so on. Although the things were so flimsy and thin and all 
described in such ridiculous ways, it's like these people were under pressure, it's like they were afraid, they were terrorized. You can imagine that they were going through hell because a lot of entities were fighting. It's like the whole legions of hell were there encouraging some, discouraging others, keeping pressure because the thing has to flow that way. Even when Pilatus is trying to ask the crowd, whom shall I give you, Jesus or Barabbas? People somehow mysteriously, they manage to cry stronger that Barabbas should be liberated. And uh, whichever the reason is, there is pressure. This is mass manipulation by demonic entities who in that moment gave everything they got. Because this was, it was now or never. It was the moment which decided history. And of course the demonic entities could not see what will happen next. So they did not realize that by doing this, actually they did Jesus and the world a great favor. And actually they, the things were flowing exactly the way God wanted them to flow. But in their limited understanding, they had the enemy in front of them. And the enemy had to be taken out of the physical plane as quickly as possible. Because he was a pain in the neck. And he, the, the faster he would be eliminated, the better. Even Pilatus, who apparently didn't have anything with Jesus and was versed in philosophy and a man of rather manipuristic Roman philosophical disposition and whose wife has visions and sends him words and says, you shall not touch that man because there is nothing guilty about him, what guilt and so on. And his own wife sends him word, leave that man alone because I'm having very bad feeling about this thing and yet Pilatus in the end does it. Somehow it's like a hypnosis, it's like everybody is knocked on the head with a hammer and takes the wrong decisions one after another, one after another, one after another. This is concerted, big time demonic influence, like coincidences, 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 pressure, pressure, pressure. The brave ones discouraged, the evil ones encouraged, and it continues and continues until the things are fulfilled. That is why you should know most of you were lucky enough not to go to this kind of event and maybe God would spare you in this lifetime. I had the, I don't know what to call it, the opportunity or the chance to go to this kind of event and I can tell you that in the moment when it starts rolling, it rolls big time. It's kind of like, it's like an avalanche. You cannot stop it anymore. In the moment when such events start happening, it's like the impact is way, way out of proportion. When you look back or when you look from outside, you say, wait, but they couldn't do like this, but they couldn't do like that. And uh, one day when you will be in such events, you'll understand exactly what I told you today, that in the moment when the demonic forces, they catch such a breach, they put all the pressure in that breach because they know they will never get the second chance. And therefore, they have to give the best. They have to give it the whole hand. And if they are allowed, if the divine laws allow it to happen, then actually, yes, it is going to happen. And that is why in the history of mankind, many things have been going, like, absurdly bad sometimes. Like, worse and worse, and you can ask yourself, why does it need to go like this? Remember that human beings are not alone, and there will be there for spiritual influences. So, uh, until they saw with their own eyes what the demonic pressure can actually mean and how much your mind can be disturbed by that and how much your personality can be altered by that, 
Peter, who is the most fiery and manipuristic apparently, and all the others, they declare, no, nothing will stop us, we are full of faith and so on. And basically they bite the dust in just a few hours, shamefully, which is nothing else but quot erat demonstrandum. That means it's just uh, the demonstration of what human nature ultimately is. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. That's on the Mount of Olives. It's so he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's uh, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, two of the disciples were brothers, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That's a very disturbing because he said, I'm going to pray, but he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Like, what a prayer that must have been if people, when they go through trouble, if people, when they are about to undergo surgery, and they pray like they pray, imagine what the prayer of a man who is going to change the destiny of a world and to get crucified barbarously in the process and tortured inhumanely and over the top is going to be like how hard it is especially when you are in the condition of one so awakened so aware not dull then he said to them my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me going a little further he fell with his face to the ground and prayed my father if it is possible May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the fundamental prayer which describes the attitude to God, because this is the surrender of the individual will to the universal will. The last formula, it becomes a meditation formula in yoga. It is not yet not as I will, but as you will. It's kind of surrendering my will to the universal will, that's the ultimate norm. And Jesus gives the most brilliant example because he has been asked to come and to fulfill a tremendous mission which contains something terrible in it. And because he is at the same time a human being, he cannot, nobody would like that. You have to be crazy to like that. And therefore, Jesus is aware of what's coming up and he prays, if it is possible. To, it's like we pray, if it is possible that there should not be doomsday, if it is possible that there shall not be apocalypse, world war and cataclysms and whatever is coming up, please God, let it not happen, because there is not going to be any fun for anybody. The chosen ones will not sit in a lodge and just clap and look it like it is at a circus. It will affect and afflict everybody. So nobody really wants those things to happen, at least nobody who is sane, nobody who is in the integrity of their mind. And because of this, we can also pray, if it is possible, but ultimately, I cannot impose my will. Now Jesus, being the Son of God, maybe he could have been like, if a child is asking his father, do this for me, I have a special wish, do this, which father will not fulfill it? When God answered to his prayer and raised the dead after four days in the tomb, then basically there is no prayer which would not be answered to someone, to someone like Jesus. So Jesus could force 
But if he would force, then he would not fulfill his mission. He would desert his mission. That means he would simply say, Father, in the last instant, I'm chickening out. I don't think I can do this. And he would run, squealing with his tail between his legs like a beaten dog, and he will avoid, and he could avoid it. You can be sure that that, that means the freedom of Jesus was total, and his understanding of prayer was total. And yet, he accepts the ultimate. He accepts that even in this moment, he simply says, I could change it, and I know I could simply avoid, I could simply run, you know. I could take a horse and simply run to another country today. Simply move from here tonight. Nothing would happen then, right? I know what it takes for it not to happen. And yet, if I don't do it, I don't fulfill the will of He who sent me here. And therefore, this is it. For that will, I actually have to give my life and actually in a terrible way. And in this way, he prays. It's a real, real, it's on the edge type of prayer where he's disturbed and scared and everything. You can see his human nature here. And at the same time, he has in his soul, there is something which is unshakable. He cannot betray God. He cannot betray his mission. He would like to get away with it. He would like to find an intelligent way to get away with it. But ultimately, he tells to God, may thy will be done. This may thy will be done, not mine, but yours. It is ultimate, and this is karma yoga. This is the essence of surrender. This is in the moment when the ego is entirely subordinated to the spirit, to Atman, to the Supreme Self. And this is therefore uh, seen in, it is a moment in the life of Jesus, which is amazing, which is to be meditated, which shows us something of the real nature of Jesus, and the fact that this man accepted to suffer in a human way. I told you from the very beginning, that's one of the things many people say, what, there were no more martyrs in the history of mankind? Oh yes, there have been many spiritual martyrs in the history of mankind, actually most of them inspired by Jesus himself. So after Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus, there have been plenty and plenty of spiritual martyrs. But you know what? The spiritual history shows that most of those martyrs, in the moment, uh, martyrs, whatever, in the moment when they, in the moment when they were martyrized, they did not really express too much pain. It's like they were so much in trance, it's like they were so much blissed out, that somehow they, they kind of blissed out, and in this way it's kind of, their death was more like an ecstasy rather than an agony. But I told you in the beginning, for those who were here in, the, in our first lectures, that Jesus did not do that. Jesus chose to do something which is unique in the history of mankind. Yes, you can say, isn't Ramakrishna a kind of martyr also? Because he took cancer, he took the karma of other people and he died of cancer. It's not fun to have a cancer in the throat, it's especially 150 years ago when medical science was abominable in India. Uh, you can imagine that the medical care which Ramakrishna received was not very high class and basically he was in agony. But you know what? When you read what was happening in the last days when Ramakrishna was in agony, 
people were crying for him because he could not eat anymore. His tumor in the throat was so big he could not swallow, he could not even drink liquid. He was gone, he was going and of course he was in terrible pain. And people cried and they said, poor you, what you must suffer. And Ramakrishna looked at them and said, when the self is submerged in the immensity of the universal self, the body is far, far down and away and one feels only a very, very vague shadow of what happens to the body. Basically, Ramakrishna told them, while my body has cancer, I am in Samadhi, and basically I feel only 1% of what I would feel if I were in my body. But you are going to see that Jesus did not go in Samadhi while he was on the cross. Actually, he expresses it clearly by saying, my God, my God, why have you left me? It's like zero. It's like such a sacrifice that the man accepts to go on a cross completely, even giving up the state of Samadhi. Like there is no escapism. I am going into it just like Tom, Dick and Harry. And actually, a person of such a spirituality who develops such an awareness, you are going to see, uh, if ever, and I wish that that is just a bad dream and it would never happen to any one of you, if ever you would have to be tortured or treated badly in this way, you are going to see that those who do yoga, they feel their body ten times better than the other people. The normal people are not aware of their body, they are not aware of a lot of things, they don't feel their tissues, they don't feel their body, because they suffer of a lack of awareness. But in the moment when you actually are subjected to this, in the moment when you are actually subjected to such a thing, if you are indeed a yogi, your awareness is much, much bigger than the average person. So the pain for a yogi is also amplified because he is so much more aware, the body is tuned to such a level. And that is why, what in the case of Jesus, we are talking about a person of supreme sensitivity and at the same time who does something crazy, refuses to take the painkiller, refuses, just goes into it, full power, and that's inimaginable, because even the martyrs, even the Christian martyrs who have been crucified and thrown to the lions and burned alive, most of them died in ecstasy when they were crucified. History shows that most of them were blissed out, they started seeing angels, their face was a smile, they were blissed out, and they were burning, they didn't feel their body, they were out of their body already. And they were like Ramakrishna with his tumor, not Jesus. And I'm telling you again, it's very difficult to understand the extent of this one. That means if a man like Ramakrishna felt the need of running away from pain and taking refuge in Samadhi, you can imagine what we're talking about, that almost nobody could be able to do that, to go to that extent. And therefore, what Jesus does is formidable, and this fact that he accepts to be human, it's like a total surrender. This is bhakti yoga taken to the ultimate limit. You are going to see how it manifests. I'm going to explain as the events happen. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. I have witnessed it myself, not necessarily with my disciples, but when I was a disciple and doing this, that sometimes some things were in important and... Uh, because of my indolence and because of my ego and because of my ignorance, I could not whip myself up 
to be awakened to the importance of the moment. It's like you tell to everybody, meditate, there will be a big earthquake happening, there is a cataclysm and so on. And exactly in those days, people are busy. They have a lot of things to do, they, you know, and nobody does the tapas, and nobody does this, and nobody does that. It's easy to say, yeah, right, we have a problem, everybody meditate, everybody meditate with Tara, please, we need everybody to meditate with Tara. And then after three days, if you make an honest-to-God survey, and you ask everybody to swear in front of God how many minutes of meditation they did, and when, you are appalled, it's like... Those people are not even as much as friends, you know. Even in a gang of thieves, people would have more solidarity than sometimes. And why? Of course, because the demonic forces interfere, the ego, the ignorance, the inertia, the laziness, and all the other things. And that's the way it goes. And here it is. Jesus is just have giving them the new covenant. He is just walking on the clouds of sky. He is about to leave this world. He is kind of telling them that he is going to be crucified and people swear that they will follow him everywhere. And they cannot stay awake for a few hours while he is praying. And they see that the man is in agony and that things are really, really tough. And they just fall asleep. Because what the fuck, it's night, you know. And we know this guy since three years. And yeah, he's a weird, he sometimes stays up in the night and he's dubious anyhow. And you know, maybe he can stay up and not sleep, but we people, we are more weak and we need our sleep, you know. And it's kind of, they are not able even to see that this is a day unlike any other day. That at least today, could they stay awake? Sure, they should just slap each other on the face or, you know, if any somebody really wants to stay awake, there are a hundred methods to stay awake. You just pull your hair painfully for five minutes and you produce adrenaline and then you will not be able to sleep, you know. There are a hundred methods to stay awake if you really want to stay awake, you know. But they cannot hear is the demonic pressure has already started. It's rolling already. The avalanche has started in the subtle world and these people are already stuck in their neck. They behave absurdly. Again, it's like the momentum of events is way, way above their own little willpower and personality. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked. Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. That's a typical duality, and that we encounter so often in spirituality. Everybody can write a book about this sentence. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You all know what I'm talking about. And here it is manifested at a painful level. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible if it is if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. It's kind of again, the same blindness, it's like a hypnosis where people cannot see and then afterwards they will regret it very much. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords, swords and clubs, 
sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer has arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That is supposed to have been Peter. The Bible doesn't say who it was, but the unofficial history of the church records that, of course, Peter, the impulsive one, was the one who took out the sword and wounded one of the guys there. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So obviously Jesus here has another opportunity, but now it's rolling full power already and he is in charge, he is lucid enough to know where he is going. Basically, maybe there would have been a skirmish, there would have been a battle there or something. Jesus stops it because whatever he does shall not be done with violence. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple court teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. He is also playing a pretty confusing game, and he's telling this is the way it's supposed to be. But the truth is that you are going to see the disciples are not required to do either this or that. They have this free will, and none of them really demonstrates a full spiritual commitment here. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled in the night time. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Again, he could have put up an excellent defense he obviously had a way with words, but no, he just stayed silent, like defying, provoking, like let them do their worst. It's almost like he's looking for it, really. And again, I'm saying there are many situations where he has other chances. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Here, it's a fundamental moment, because even the angels answer in the moment when they are summoned like this. The high priest says, 
I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. It's like swear by the living God. It's kind of now no more fooling around, no more telling things. It's kind of swear by God. Are you or not? In such a situation, indeed, Jesus has no choice. Basically, he is stuck to the wall and he has to answer with the truth. And of course, he was waiting, not that he was afraid to tell the truth, but it's like diplomacy will not work. doesn't work with double entendre answers and things like this. He is asked under oath, like, look, we want in the name of God to know your answer of this. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, <coughs> in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So basically, with this one he seals his faith because he provokes their deepest religious fears and everything. Then the high priest tore his clothes, that was a ritual act, in front of blasphemy, that he was supposed to tore, to tear his clothes, like, uh, to demonstrate indignation, uh, intolerance to death, and said, he has spoken blasphemy, why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? He is worthy of death, death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others clapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. From this moment on, things go worse and worse. It's like, you know what people do when they lynch and the mobs, what they are able to, and the cruelty of people. And suddenly this man is kind of defiled and they suddenly can lay hands on a man who was an idol and whatever, and then people are simply showing their worst as usual, as, as it happens usually. So they spit him, they hit him, and they play all kind of silly games, like they hit him and say, now prophesy, show us your clairvoyance and tell us who hit you, right? Like hitting him from behind and other things like this. And therefore, things indeed are turning bitter all the way. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and the servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Then in that moment, he had a moment of awakening of the souls, and the history of the church says that this awakening of the souls lasted him for the next 30 or 40 years of his life. They simply say, according to the oral tradition of Christianity, that Peter cried day in and day out for the next 30 years until the day of his own crucifixion. They say that Peter cried so much because of this 
that when he was 75 years old or whatever he was when he was crucified, he had marks on his cheeks. He had two deep marks on the cheeks, on the on the cheeks where the tears had been flowing for 30 years non-stop. So in this way, this is a moment. I mean, that is the moment when he suddenly realizes that all it's true and that he is a piece of garbage, that he doesn't have the power to stand up for this, that he is completely human, that he is lacking the verticality and a lot of other things about himself which are not so pleasant to discover and then he repents. Peter falls into the pattern of repentance. He starts crying his heart out and repents bitterly and it appears that this repentance has kept him for a lifetime so touched he was and so modified he was in his heart and so much willpower he had to stay there and also that his enlightenment helped him to be there. So in this way, uh, this is the moment where in th which indeed separates Jesus because Jesus is subjected to much worse and of course Peter, he would have been treated also pretty roughly Maybe the crowd would have lynched him, and it's not a joke to be lynched by the crowd. Maybe he, they would have taken him also in front of the priest, and he would have also received some punishment. Maybe his punishment would have been as big as that of Jesus, or smaller. Uh, but he simply did not have the guts to go for there. I remember that many years ago, my first yoga teacher used to say that he believed he felt that if Peter in this situation would have stood up and went the bitter path, he would have taken the cross, he would have accepted his allegiance to Jesus. The history, the future history, the future centuries of history would have been very different. It's kind of more divine power, more grace would have been overflown over this planet and kind of both him and the whole history of mankind would have benefited more if this one man would have had the probity, the verticality, the spine to stand up and accept courageously what he had to accept. But truly, you cannot really ask that from anybody. And as I said, uh, some people who have been in that kind of situation know exactly what it takes and the kind of pressure the kind of infernal pressure that we are talking about. So basically Jesus is rolling down already. His fate is decided. The Sanhedrin and the high priest, they decided that this man needs to be eliminated. And Peter just dumps his test. This is a test indeed for Peter. Peter was given a chance because each test is also a chance. You dump it but you also have the big chance to pass it, and then you become more immortal. Peter has a reputation as having been, why not, the first of the apostles, uh, whatever, the most active of the apostles, the most fiery of them, a bit of a leader of the apostles, at least having this more domineering type of personality. Peter could have become much more if you would have gone through this test. But in spite of his best wishes, and in spite of the fact that just the night before, he swore to Jesus that wherever you go, I'll be with you, I'll not do this, blah, blah, when 
the event actually happened, he discovers that the pressure on him is so disproportionate that he simply breaks childishly. He curses himself, he takes oaths, he is kind of completely frantic to escape of this. He would not take the responsibility of it. And in this way, you can see indeed that in this battle to save humanity, actually, Jesus is alone. Nobody is with him. His own mother doesn't seem to understand him and considers him a freak. She doesn't appear too much in his living life. And kind of, he says, well, everybody is my mother. You know, we talked about this, that he doesn't seem to have a very brilliant relationship with his mom because he is doing this hobo, crazy, provocative thing. His own disciples run like they scatter, like scared birds. And so basically nobody here, he is alone with the world. This is indeed the greatness of Jesus, that he is able to stand there alone and to drink the cup to the bottom to do everything. Only a divine spirit with a courage and a faith and a purity which is beyond the comprehensible human levels would have gone, would be able to go this far. And this is, remember, even for Jesus, this is a test. Because Jesus is free, he has free will, and he has the capacity to say no. His prayer, he's on the edge. He prays and says, please, if it's possible, no, no. And then he says, but may your will be done. He is very close to the edge. Therefore, for him, it's also a test. Don't think that for Jesus it's easy. That means he is a divine spirit, but this divine spirit is to be given power or not. He is winning a race. You will see that the more Jesus goes through things, the more he gets right. Because you don't get right like this. The Christ in Greek means the anointed one. Anointed means that God anointed him in the same way in which you anointed kings or priests. Anointed to be a Christ, it means to be anointed. That means Jesus becomes Christ in the meaning that the whole earth is given to him. He becomes a bit like the king of the earth. He takes over like the king of Shambhala or something. He becomes, he is given a planetary responsibility that is not given just because he came and said, please, may I have that. He needs to, he needs to earn it. Yes, even a spirit like Jesus needs to earn it. And therefore, he is kind of, it's like a test. It's like he subjects himself to something which is incomprehensible, and then he gets a power, and then he gets a warrant, which is almost unequaled by anything in the history of mankind, because he dares to go through something like this, and he does it in the name of God, and he does it with full purity, and he is perfect till the end, and he forgives everybody, and he doesn't strike back, and whatever he does is perfect and divine, and such a man simply takes a straight A in his test. He simply passes the test brilliantly, no flaw, and then automatically it's like God says, wow, you passed your test, you are in charge. They are all yours. I have given them to you. And therefore in the next moment, Jesus says, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and therefore I am telling you do this and that. He didn't say I have it from the beginning. He says, now that I have been crucified and behaved right, all power has been given to me on earth and in heaven. 
and therefore this is what's going to happen. It's like he's tested. He's passing his own test, unlike Peter who flunks his own test, and he passes his test. He's the only one who passes the test, and because of this, he opens the heavens, he defines a new spirituality, he creates a spiritual path, and he delivers to this mankind some spiritual truths which are unique and which are the way you have seen them until now. I have reached to the paragraph number 27, which is basically the last, because the paragraph number 28 is just one page. So we'll have on Tuesday the last, the last two paragraphs, two pages, four pages left of the Gospel of Matthew, of course showing what happened next and how to understand that from a yogic standpoint. Meditate, remember that there are many mysteries and the way, the way Jesus goes and what he does is unique. It is unique. Remember that his interaction with the laws of karma, his interactions with the destiny of mankind, his interaction with a lot of things is unique. Remember that there have been martyrs. There has been martyrdom a bit before Jesus and a lot after Jesus. But almost nobody really does it the way Jesus does. Peter, at some point, seems to have a bit of a crazy one, because Peter being touched by this remorse, I hope you know the final story, which is inconceivable, that when, eventually, when, I think it was Nero, he triggers the big persecution, the first big persecution of Christians in the year 60-something, 70-something, Peter is at Rome, and first, the Paul, the other apostle, he gets beheaded, and then Peter is caught, and of course he will be crucified. And in the moment, he is 70 years old, and uh, he, is, he knows what's coming up. And then he sees the cross, because that was the Roman fashion, and they want to put him on a cross, and Peter, the madman, big manipura, indeed here you can see someone who kind of, he, he is trying to catch up with the lost test, he is pushing it madly, in a crazy way. Peter looks at the cross and he says, I do not deserve to die of the same glorious death as my Lord has. I am not worthy to die of the same. It's too good for me, miserable that I am, to die of the same glorious death as Jesus did. So he is simply asking them to crucify him upside down. So Peter was actually crucified upside down because he asked for it, he simply said, I'm not worthy to die of the same death as Jesus. I'm not worthy to tie the shoelaces of that man. I've betrayed him and I've been a miserable thing. If you want to crucify me, crucify me in a more painful way, in a more demanding way. And indeed, they crucified him upside down and this is how Peter died. So in this way, there is something of it. There you can see a glimpse of it, which Jesus manifests full power, and it is again incomprehensible. Everybody can only shake their head and think, wow, when my time will come, will I ever be able to push it to such a limit? Who did push it to such a limit? Who would be able to sacrifice their lives in, in a way, you know, like pushing it fearlessly beyond any limit? And knowing that you are not going to drink morphine or go in samadhi or knowing that you are going to be there as an ordinary person, 
and taste the bitterness of it to the bottom. That's why what Jesus does, I'm saying again, is again, externally there have been other martyrs on this planet, but internally in metaphysics it is known that the sacrifice of Jesus is different from the sacrifice of most others because he dares to go personally in there and he takes it on his shoulders with a courage which is akin to madness, which is akin to insanity. <coughs> which of course it is not insanity, it's just supreme surrender, supreme humbleness. I will not say more, it's late of course, if you want some comments, if you would like to ask some questions, please feel welcome. We'll clarify more about the sacrifice of Jesus on Tuesday when we we'll read the final paragraph. Only one, maybe I don't know, I don't have a Christian background, so I, maybe it's a question to you. It doesn't matter, just not fight. The, like, uh, Judai was uh, bringing, the, bringing the Romans to Jesus, mm. and still is one of the twelve apostles, and all the twelve there have a, a, a safe position. No, not, not Judah. They, le they were left eleven, and then they had to choose another one. They had to promote another one. Now Judas is gone. In the next paragraph, commits suicide. And with this, he ends the game completely. As you will see in the next paragraph, Judas has hanged himself because of remorse, because of realizing what an incredible thing he has done. Then he went and suicided himself in the same night. So. Uh, Islam is obviously also going to fight the Absolutely. And I don't know exactly numbers. Isn't it the biggest now? Probably. But it's very hard to say. Although of course they say something in terms of participation to the collective con subconscious mind of this planet. But no, some of these big religions they are so the path of, uh, comparable. One how Elias, it doesn't seem to be the same Elias as Jesus and the Buddha. He definitely has a bit of a different path. But he is a mystic. He has the mystic vision, obviously. Because if the angels appear to him and dictate him the Koran, this is not an ordinary fact, right? How many people have received the visitations of angels and angels gave them a holy book to write? And that holy book was accepted and promoted and became divine and everything. It's obvious that no Tom, Dick and Harry could do that, I mean. We have had mystics in yoga, right? We had the... Uh, who to say? Meher Baba or whatever, you know? Meher Baba claimed he was a kind of messiah. But he never really moved the world the way the Prophet Muhammad moves the world. So still, the, pro the Prophet Muhammad has... Yeah, that's a very good question. What it is that moves, right? That some people seem to have a charisma, some people seem to have an impact, and what they do simply rocks the world spiritually, and it spreads like brush fire, like it spreads completely. So it spreads in the whole humanity, it spreads incredibly. That's exactly what it is. This shows that it's not a human power there, that it's something beyond the human understanding. 
So many people still becoming Buddhists. For example, in India, a lot of Hindus convert to Buddhism these days. Yeah. There are people also in India, just to give an example, converting to Christianity. So, it's. I've heard about people converting to Judaism. It's true, smaller cases because Judaism is smaller in numbers itself. But it happens all the time. That means people change religion. And anyhow, but they, I, I like, they accept a certain facet of the truth. When uh, such a chain of uh, negative events, uh, wrong decisions, starts to happen, is there a way to break it? To get out? Only by working with the cosmic powers, usually the energy of Chinamasta breaks these chains of events. You need to have an explosive energy like lightning, like something like lightning. It's kind of you need to have a courage and a kind of determination, which is something heroic, incredible. You, you need to do something really spectacular, out of proportion, to be able to break this kind of chain of events. There are some cosmic powers like Chinamasta, Bagalamuki, you don't know much about the cosmic powers, but they represent some fundamental energies of the universe. There are some families of energies of the universe which create exactly a kind of energy which can interrupt even the chain of negative events, which act like an exorcism, which act like the lightning of Zeus stopping the demons, burning them in their way, kind of exorcising and cleansing. That's probably the best energy when you'll understand the nature of that energy. It's like electricity, it's like lightning, and it's a certain fast action, heroic, formidable. So yes, it is possible through a summoning of a great force, but not everybody can accumulate such a momentum to get that force running and to then be able to change it. I've seen it both one way and the other. The number 12 apostles that uh, comes from the 12 tribes? The yeah, actually it comes from the 12 tribes and it is related in yoga with Anahata Chakra, the 12 spokes. That's why there are 12 tribes, basically. There are 12 tribes because they are supposed, the whole structure is supposed to be a reflection of the heart. It's the heart, you know, it's macrocosmos, microcosmos, everything is symbolic. That's why they choose 12 tribes and not 14 or 8 or 9. Or it's, it's not a coincidence that there were 12. Enough for tonight, it's very late. Tuesday we have the last